I want to continue with what we started last week. And if, if you weren't here last week, I would strongly suggest that you uh, get to listen to what was said on, on YouTube because um, this all fits together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. But I want to take a text in the sense that the, these words sum up what I'm going to talk about this morning. It's in chapter 3 of Hosea, and the first verse, really this sums up everything. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. And then he says, It will be even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel. So he is saying, you are going to love this woman. And actually, it should be beloved, a woman beloved. And yet, she's an adulteress right in your face. But go again and love her. Don't give up on her. Because what you are doing is giving a picture of how the Lord loves you. And then he says, and I say this only because someone's going to ask me, um, it says the Lord loves them even though they turn to other gods. Well, I think that's pretty obvious. That's to the Baal. And love raisin cakes. Where the heck does that fit in? Um, the, the raisin cakes were equivalent in the temples of Baal as our Eucharist. They ate the cakes as an act of worship to Baal. Though it sure doesn't sound like that as you read it here. So just forget that last part. He is commanded, and he's already been through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he's already had this woman that he was commanded to bring into his house and marry her and to love her, and she has been unfaithful. She's left him, come back, left him, come back, and he has gone to find her. And then there appears to be a period of time where she is left to consequence and at the bottom of her pit now. She's for sale. That means that she's run out of clients. It means that the temple doesn't want her anymore. She's no longer a sacred prostitute. She's out. She's finished. And so the woman standing on the stage being auctioned, as someone's trying to convince the crowd, for goodness sake, someone buy her. Someone, someone put a dime down. And, uh, if you could imagine, she's no longer uh, little Miss Eros. She, she's bedraggled. She's in some filthy shift. Her hair is hanging down around her face, dark rings under her eyes, unwanted, left in the prison probably until she's dragged out to be sold. She's come to the bottom of her pit. And can you imagine as she looks up through her half-closed eyes, and see standing there in the crowd, Hosea, will the man ever leave me alone? 
will his man ever stop pursuing me? That's the picture here. Now, as she stands there, you could say she is under judgment. But even if I didn't say that, if you read the book of Hosea, there's a lot concerning judgment upon Goma and upon people she represented Israel. And this is where we run into so much problem. Um, it's the heart of the gospel. And I, I would like, I'm not going to do it, but I would like to go around just here, let alone those of you watching there, and, and to, to say, what, what do you understand about this? Uh, when were you forgiven? And now there, there's, that will keep us here for the rest of the morning. Because I would say 90% would say they were forgiven in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then why on earth did you ask for forgiveness at some point in time and say that was the day I got saved? Uh, do, do you understand? You seem to be very confused. Were you saved? Were you forgiven then? Or were you saved, forgiven when you put some words together that were acceptable by the church to say, I'm forgiven? And then, but why did you go forward next Wednesday and ask to be forgiven? Uh, can we get this straight? Yeah. What, what happened on the cross? What, what, what really happened? And again, I've got 10 different answers to that. Um, but somehow we believe that on the cross, it happened. Something happened. We believe that in the blood of Jesus shed is the forgiveness of our sins, sort of. Um, some people believe that God the Father smashed his son because he could never find it in himself just to forgive you. He had to kill somebody before he could forgive you. And then he smiles at you through the gore and the blood and says, love me. Um, could you love a child abuser? You see what I mean? This gets complicated. What happened on the cross? Who was the actors on the cross? Judgment, judgment comes up over and over again. Well, here it is. We're looking at a book that essentially, if you just read it through, is full of judgment. And yet, at the end of every little sort of um, bit of the passage on judgment, it comes with enormous promise that God says, but, you know, you're, you're loved and you, you are lifed and you are blessed and... Um, where does that fit in? Is it that God can't make up his mind? Do you follow me? What is judgment? What is? We have a book here that is full of judgment passages, but at the self-same moment, it's full of love passages. Agape love. Okay. I just thought I'd throw that out. It's... <laughs> What what did what did we just read? We've got to grasp this. What is really going on here? Because it does speak to what I've just said. The opening words of the book are that Hazia should go and find this woman and marry her. And when he goes to find her, she is the Eros Temple prostitute. And marry her. This is insanity. 
That's why many people don't understand the book or even go to read it. That he is commanded by God to marry a prostitute, not befriend her, not witness to her, not give her the four spiritual laws, but to marry this woman. And understand this in the context of the whole of the Old Testament where they understood covenant relationship. It's in our traditional marriage services, but to these people, they knew what it meant. And to marry meant you're entering into a covenant relationship, which means all that I am, I give to you, and all that you are, you give to me. And we are bound together. We now have one history. They too shall become one flesh. So that there's Goma and there's Hosea, but covenantally it means they are two but are mystically one. And it means all that Goma brings, Hosea now takes it. And all that Hosea brings, Goma is to take. It is a union. These aren't two people just living together. These are two people who covenantally have become absolutely one. Wow. Did you realize what that means? Just two sentences out of the beginning of the book. What does that mean? All that she is. Huh. That's a mouthful. All that she has, which isn't very much, but it's all that she understands in her world of Eros, is now to be made one with Hosea. And Hosea brings all that he is, which is agape, and all that he has to offer, and they become one. Can I say that again? Because this is massive. In fact, if you can understand this, you'll begin to understand the gospel. That, that what did she bring to this covenant relationship? She brought guilt, big time guilt. She is wrong. She brings shame, just being who she is. Even among her clients in the temple, they despise her. Shame for who she is and what she does. Her world is Eros. And if you remember from last week, Eros means that I only desire the highest, the best, the most beautiful, and I reject everything that's ugly. <sighs> Shit, that was her world. That was her mind. It's all she brings. So... She brings that in a covenant relationship to Hosea. What does Hosea do with that? Does he just say, I've had it with you. I don't want you in my house. I don't want this foul stuff in my house. No, he marries her. He's deeply pained when she runs away. So what does he do that she has brought to him and in marriage he's become one with this? Hear me very carefully, he does not, how could I put it, he doesn't believe in Eros. You, you can bring it to him, and he, in covenant relationship he's bonded with it, but he doesn't believe it. Did you follow me? To him that's not the truth. 
He doesn't believe the lies that attend Eros. Nor is he caught in the seduction of it. She, and this is his wife, she brings all of the seduction of Eros. She's going to present herself to him as one of her clients. She's going to come as the highest, the best, the most beautiful and and try to seduce him. But he doesn't believe in Eros, nor then is he seduced by Eros. He lives by agape, which is the reverse of Eros. And to her, he gives. Now, what's his gift? What does he bring to the marriage? Agape. So here is she, twisted, distorted Eros. So all she has to give, but is met in Hosea by agape, which is the reverse of Eros, and loves. And when he says love, it means I give myself to you. And loves the least and the less and the ugly and the rejected and the untouchable. The reverse of all of this. That's what she sees. Doesn't understand it, but that's what she sees in agape. And he brings to her forgiveness. Let me say, um, you cannot forgive a person unless they have hurt you. That is, if, if somebody hurts Jeff, I can't forgive that somebody. They didn't hurt me. Do you follow me? You can only forgive the person who is actually the perpetrator of hurt. She has been unfaithful to Hosea. She is bringing nothing but pain into the relationship Hosea forgives her, which means, in plainer English, releases her from all the guilt and the shame that she brings, releases her to receive his agape. That's what he brings. And he gives to her his name. She walks the streets of Samaria bearing the name of Hosea, her husband. And the honor that belongs to Hosea, he shares it with her. It's in the marriage. The glory of being God's prophet in Israel, he shares with her. It's, I can understand she didn't understand this. Didn't understand it a bit. She brings to the marriage so that he becomes, in the eyes of the people, shamed with her shame. He becomes, in the eyes of the public, guilt with her guilt. But he doesn't believe it. He accepts it, but he won't take it. And the hook that's in Eros, he straightens out the hook. He won't be affected by it. This was the relationship. And I can understand. Goma doesn't understand. That's why it became a chaotic relationship. They're smashing against each other. Agape, Eros, she doesn't understand Agape, he won't touch Eros. 
even though he has in the marriage taken it. And he is now named by the public as part of that. Goes with the marriage. This all began, of course, back in Genesis, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when it was that in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And death is not merely the end of physical life. You could say that's judgment. It is kind of judgment. But if you separate yourself from life, why are you surprised you're dead? <laughs> you know, if I pull the plug out of the wall, why am I surprised that the refrigerator stops? You, you follow me? Okay, the, it stops. That's a judgment on the action of pulling out the plug. But, but it follows. And it, they were warned. Love warned them in the day you eat, you shall die. There'll be a separation from life by their action. And instead, they have plugged in to something else. They've plugged in to the lie of Satan. And Satan means the divider. It means the accuser. And so they, they have deliberately exited the world of agape and life and truth and they have now associated, covenanted with the death life that Satan is, entered into his dividing and separating, entered into a mental darkness because the human mind was never meant to understand this. Our mind, in our creation, we were meant to understand Walking in the life of God. That's it. Made in the image of God. What? Sin is absolute insanity. There is, somebody said, could you logically explain sin? No, I can't. There is no logic to it. That, that I would look in the face of love, turn my back and plug into death. There is no answer to that. Mankind did it. It's a mental darkness. And in that darkness... I've forgotten who God is. I can't see who God is. So I invent a God. I invent the gods that fit my situation. I feel I'm guilty. I, I feel I'm wrong. So I need a God that will agree with me. It's the way it works. I need to invent a God that will punish my sin. That will make me feel better. I need a God who will reject me so that I can tell myself I am right. That's the way it is. So we did. The darkness is filled with gods. Gods that are no gods. They're inventions of the human twisted mind. But we did it. And at one end of that scale, you have the gods of Baal. And they've got many names. But they're, because they're all much the same thing. But at the other end of the scale, you have within even Christianity gods that are no gods, love that is not love, all invented inside of the darkness. And Eros became the twisted love. Satan can never create anything. 
He can only take what God created and twist it. And so agape, God is agape, is outreaching, give myself away. Satan took agape and twisted it backwards and said, it's all for me. He became instead of the great gushing forth cascading of life, he became the black hole that sucked it into himself. Eros. And in that, life and relationships took place. And that was what came out of the Garden of Eden. And you can get pretty prosperous in that. And prosperity then becomes your label of success. That's what you have in Hosea. Just as Hosea opens what was happening in Israel at that time, it was their most successful time. They were rich and their crops were producing and their herds were full. And But underneath, it's a very shallow thing. Underneath that, they groped in darkness and, and they were drunk on eros as a pleasure. And all the time, mankind was spiraling down back to the dust from whence he came. Uh, I, how, how did mankind be? By God calling us forth out of the dust. Mankind existed by the word of God calling him forth. I reject that word. I plug into something else. What is death? I am now spiraling. As a human race, we are spiraling back to nothingness from whence the word of God called us forth. Well, that's, of course, death. Once you say, death is corruption. Death is everything collapsing. Death is, is that coming down to the nothingness. Judgment? Maybe we better understand judgment as turning on the lights. Um, judgment isn't just someone mad at you and with a club. It, it is in, in God's book. It just turns on the lights. Because in that darkness, we don't see who we are. We think this is marvelous. We think we're jolly good people. God the light, judgment is the light. God turns it on and says, this is who you really are. And it's the ugliest, dirtiest, most sordid picture that we have in, in Hosea. The lights show this is the way things really are. If you're unplugged, all you've got is we're corrupting. It's, what is judgment? Judge is, judgment is the proclamation of truth. We live in the darkness of lies about ourselves and lies about God. God just proclaims the truth and that truth judges us that we're, we're wrong, fallen short. And please understand when we say judgment, God doesn't judge to satisfy himself. He is not the cosmic pervert who, who just wants to beat you up because that's how he gets his kicks. And when I've heard people preach on this, that's the impression I get. Uh, God, God enjoys doing it. Our person I've quoted before, John Piper, um, outside of Chicago, 
read what he, well, no, don't read what he says, but um, he actually said, you know, he said how when the, the Twin Towers collapsed, he said every person that died there, God killed them. That was, that's the kind of God. And he said to his little girl, he said, when I say that, how do you feel? And the little girl said, I'm afraid of God. He said, that's good, that's good. That, that's what is believed by 50% of evangelicals in America. Um, go to the Smithsonian uh, and, and see, it's, it's right there. The greatest preacher in America is in the Smithsonian, Jonathan Edwards, who preached just what I've said. The, God, he said, God holds you by the thread of his mercy over hell. And he, he, just, he could throw you there. Well, no, that's not judgment. Now, that, that is a paganism that produces God as an abusing parent. When God judges, it is, why does he turn on the lights? Because he wants to redeem us. And the only way he can redeem us is that we see who we are and to realize our needs. Why does he announce the truth about who we are? Because while we're living in the lies, we believe everything is just hunky-dory. God never judges with a view of hurting you. His judgment is ultimately to make everything right. But we've got to start by seeing everything's wrong. Judgment. And so as you read through Hosea, you'll find that Goma is being exposed. She's not little Miss Eros in the temple. It's an ugly, sordid picture that is painted. Well, how is God going to deal with this? And, and some of you really need to hear what I'm saying. Um, how is God going to deal with it? He exposes all of this in the book of Hosea. But then I say at the end of those exposures, it suddenly changes. And he says, but, but life and blessing, walking. How does he get from the judgment to those blessings? And he, and he tells them it's coming. He doesn't say it's right here. It's coming. You see, the entire Old Testament is a book without answers. And if you're reading the Old Testament, please hold that in mind. Nobody had the answers. They could define the problem up to a point, but they didn't have an answer. So what do I do with Gomer? What do I do with Israel who is reflected in this woman? What do I do with them? This isn't the end of the story. And you can read it many times as if it is the end of the story. Gomer's had it. She's finished. What's next? No, she's not finished. It's not the end of the story. Some of you are looking at me quite blank. You, you, you read Isaiah. It's a beautiful, beautiful things are said in Isaiah. That's not the end of the story. It's not, you, you, you need chapter 17, chapter 80, and chapter 90. It's not the end of the story. Israel went into captivity. That's not the end of the story. If you just read the Old Testament, that's what you'll think. 
And many people never get beyond the Old Testament. They never get to the answer. Old Testament was waiting for the answers. They waited. (laughs) Those answers would come in Jesus. Now, I, I don't know. I know most of you here. But I I don't know all of you listening there. And beyond you on YouTube, I don't know who you are. And so I'll have to speak to, I know many, many of us were raised to believe that Israel, well, that's the story of the Old Testament, isn't it? Israel, God's pet, God's precious people, Israel. And everybody goes bananas over Israel. Israel totally and absolutely failed. But it's not the end of the story. And my friends just down the road say, but Jesus is coming and that's when Israel will be saved. Oh, please. Has anybody heard Jesus came a first time? And has anybody heard he said the first time, it is finished. Jesus came. (laughs) And if Jesus completely finished, I understand then what he said. Jesus said later, I am the beginning and I'm the end. I've got it all wrapped up. I'm the A and I am the Z. Jesus is the answer to every question in the Old Testament. Jesus is the answer to all the judgment threats of the Old Testament. Jesus stepped in and is the answer. And when he came, when he rose, then we have a complete book. We have all the answers to all the questions. We have the salvation to the judgments. That's why as soon as Jesus rose from the dead, what's he going to do? He's risen from the dead. What's on first on his agenda? The first thing is he sat everybody down and it says beginning at Genesis and going through all the prophets, he retold the story of the Old Testament and said it's all about me. That's... Hosea is a picture of Jesus and he comes into Gomer's life and he takes Gomer's guilt and he takes Gomer's shame and he shoulders it. It isn't his. Everybody says it's his, but it wasn't. He took it, but he didn't believe it. He continually believed in agape, in God's goodness. And when she came to seduce him, he refused to be seduced. And he lived in the middle of darkness. He lived in the middle of guilt and shame and errors. But he refused to be part of it. But he got inside of it. He never participated in it. But he experienced its pain. He looked with deep sadness the Gomer situation. I say again, 
Hosea is just Jesus in advance. What he did is that's what Jesus is coming to do. Jesus is God. God who takes to himself ones with our humanness and our humanness that came out of the Garden of Eden in death, in darkness, in eros. He took that. You say, but Jesus was sinless. I know, so was Hosea in that sense. Jesus married himself to the human race. And we brought to him all our brokenness, all of our darkness, all of our death and guilt and shame. And he took it and became one with us. But he never believed in it. He continued to believe in his father and in agape and in the beauty of God's love. But he entered it. And until you see that, you'll wonder what on earth is going on. You'll come up with some Jesus that, well, he's got no relationship to us at all. Look in some of the stained glass windows. Look at some religious art. And it portrays Jesus as so far above us and beyond us. I, I don't know who he is. If I talked to him about football or soccer, he wouldn't know what I'm talking about. Because he never really joined us, you see. He's just floating around making us look like idiots and saying, I'm better than you. Does that make sense? Jesus joined us. Absolutely. He can't help me unless he joins me. But joins me without becoming part of my problem. Bearing it without participating in it. In his face, but not being seduced by it. Fully God. Fully God. Not a half God, not a sub God, not somewhere underneath the Father. He is face to face with the Father. He is God from God, the Creator, God, who now completely assumes our humanity. And that wasn't just a body. He got inside our mind. And that's where all our problems come from, the darkened mind. And so Jesus got inside it so he could hear us thinking. He knew every voice that we hear in our minds. Got inside our twisted, distorted imagination. He saw the filthy gods that we had invented and refused to believe in them and instead confronted it all with agape, with the love of his Father. Does that make sense? And so in, in Ephesians, it describes us, the human race. It says we walk in the futility of our mind. Futility mean aimless. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know who I am. Around in circles. And why would you do that? Being darkened in your understanding. And that is your self-exclusion from the life of God. 
Why, why, why you? Because of the ignorance that is in them, which produces hardness of heart. That I know this is the best way of life, even though I'm destroying myself as I do it. Become callous, produces behavior of sensuality, practicing every kind of impurity with greediness. That comes out of the darkness and imaginations of the heart. Jesus got inside of that. There's never a voice that you've heard that he, had, he didn't hear. You've never a twisted, distorted understanding of God, but that Jesus faced it and heard Satan say, this is the truth. And he combats it, refuses to believe it, believes his father. You see, Jesus didn't bring us salvation. He is it. And therefore, his saving of us happened inside of him. He comes inside of us so that we inside of him. Goma brought her problem. Hosea brought his life. She got inside of him and he got inside of her. And agape is confronting eros that's that's it uh, and the only way you could do that is to be unbrokenly one with the holy trinity for starters jesus i said was face to face with the father because i know yes i do know some here even but i certainly know you watching um we, we've got this idea that god the father isn't like jesus God the Father is mean. He's unpredictable. You never know. They say he's love, but you never know. And Jesus, well, he's the nice one, you see. He came and he loved sinners and he healed the sick. Now, I'm not sure about the Father, but Jesus is okay. And the Holy Spirit, well, of course, he's, he's so alive. I'm scared of him. Because you never know what he's going to say. It's like having your mentally retarded uncle over. You put him in the basement. Don't let him. So I'm left with Jesus, you see. You wash all that filthy religious down the toilet. Because if you've seen me, said Jesus, you've seen the Father. And when the Holy Spirit came, he came first upon Jesus. And Jesus said, all he will ever do is tell you about me. Father and Son and Holy Spirit. God! And Jesus is God from God, who came into our darkness without ceasing to be God. So my darkness now has swallowed up life. and didn't know it. Huh. That was a shock. Paul said, if, if the demonic powers had ever known what was going to happen, they would never have gone along with it. But well, the great answer to all the judgments of the Old Testament, we're expecting someone on a white steed come. Instead, there's a baby's cry in the night. And the newborn cry, salvation has arrived. One of us, born from the womb of a human being, out through the gush of water and blood. Here's a newborn baby. 
meet your salvation. He's one with us. God became one with us. So it's a hundred percent us and a hundred percent God, and it meets in one person. Not 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 you know half of me is God and half of it no. It's a mystery. I've got used to that, so I can just talk about it, but it's a mystery that when I speak to Jesus, he talks to me with a Galilean accent. He's one of us. And when I tell him the worst secrets of the garbage can of my heart, he said, I know I've been there. One of us. Yet at the same self, same moment, I'm talking to God. God is just being one of us. Him where we are. Finally, I understand agape. Agape cannot be defined in a dictionary. Agape is that God so gave himself to us that to meet him is to meet us, but also to meet him is to meet the love of God, giving himself to us. And so he is going all through his life, he is facing Eros. All through his life, he's facing the lies. And all through his life, he refuses to be it. He's, he's seeing us as we are. That's the judgment that he has come. Why would he come to save us? Why do we need saving? Because you're wrong. So his very presence is judgment. Do you understand that? And yet, that judgment is God's love saying, I've come to save you. You see? That that story, and I know we go back to this one almost as much as the prodigal. But when the shepherd went to the wilderness to find the sheep, do you understand me when I say that his going to the wilderness and standing in front of that sheep was judgment on the sheep? Because he wouldn't be there if the sheep wasn't lost. So therefore his being there is a judgment on, on the sheep. Okay. You're looking at me weird. But think about it again. We think of the salvation, but the point is, there would be no shepherd in the wilderness unless the sheep was in the wilderness. Nor would the shepherd be in the wilderness if it's okay for a sheep to be there. His judgment is by his presence. And so you see, um, the, the shepherd doesn't come into the wilderness to encourage the sheep. He doesn't come to the wilderness to say, now, you know, if you just up your morals a bit, you can have a better time in the wilderness. It's his being there with the sheep was a judgment on everything that sheep wasn't stood for. That is, I've come to get you out of here. But how does he do it? By joining the sheep in its judgment. So he, the shepherd, the judge, who says, you're wrong, now has joined the sheep in that judgment to bring it out. And he brings it out so dramatically around his neck so that from a distance you couldn't tell the difference between the sheep and the shepherd. 
the silhouette is just one. He joined the sheep in its judgment, took us in, he took the judgment on himself, carries the sheep out. That's what Jesus did. He took our sin, but that means he took our whole eros view of life. He, he took everything that we said was true and revealed it was really, we're believing a lie. He took it. And the cross is when we bring this to the head. It's like the boil is going to be lanced. And in this, he gives himself to mankind. Have you ever realized what that meant? We've talked about it before. That as he goes out to meet what is going to be the whole of his sufferings and death, remember he just said, I am, and everyone fell down. Which was the announcement to everyone that's fallen down you don't stand a chance. I mean, essentially, you're trying to arrest me, and all I do is say two words, and you just fall back on you, lose your sword, torches go flying. And as they're scrambling to their feet, he's doing nothing but standing there. It's as if he has made his point. Whatever you do, I've just proved I'm in charge here. But now I am giving you permission because this is my plan. I'm in charge. I know where we're going. So therefore, it never leaves my control. I'm just allowing you. You can now arrest me. I I don't know how that soldier felt as he tries to put a rope around the person. Is he going to say, I am again and knock us all to kingdom come? It's... And in that, and I want you to hear me very carefully, he lifted all restraint from humans. They have now been given divine permission to do the worst they've always wanted to do. They are going to torture God and their idea and kill him. Now, we can now return to our darkness and all the gods that we worshipped and no one will interfere. He said to Pilate, you have no power. You can neither crucify me nor set me free because you get your power from God, my Father. And therefore, he has lifted restraints and He was saying, we're in charge here. But we are deliberately saying, bring it on. We are saying, give us your worst. Bring the depths of your darkness. Put words to your hatred. Bring it on. Because in this moment, he who is God, who is man, who is therefore one with every human being. Please understand that. If he's the creator, he's entwined with every human being from the get-go. 
because he didn't only make us, he is the source of our breath, he's the source of our life. So right to begin with, he's entwined with us. And now this act of love, he's getting inside of us at our worst and saying, do to me, give to me the worst you've always wanted. Maybe didn't even know you wanted, but now let it come. And he takes, he takes their worst. So there's no sin left now that is not expressed here. Wherever you turn and see sin, it all found its way to the cross. And with every clenched fist and with every hammer and nail and thorn, behind it was the sin of the world. And as we saw weeks ago, he answered never a word, which is always the most amazing thing. When he was reviled, said Peter, he reviled not again. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And why? Because the moment he would say, don't do that, that's not me, then he has rejected their sin. Instead, by never answering a word, he is taking. Do you understand? They scream, crucify him, which in Hebrew meant damn him to hell. He didn't say, hold it, don't you know who I am? You can't do that to me. Nor did he threaten them and say, don't you know who I am? I'll get you for this. No, silence. And in the silence, it meant, as you say it, I take it. And I'm not rejecting it. I'm taking your sin. I'm entering into it as no man has ever dreamt it could be done. All your sordidness, your hatefulness, everything that is shame and wrong, I take it and make it mine. And I do it so deliberate, and it's absolute, and it's real. I've said it before, whenever you think of Jesus on the cross, see your own face. He got inside of us and he took us. I don't know if you've noticed it, but in John chapter 1, it says he became flesh. He didn't get inside of it like some charade. He became it. But then it says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin. He didn't simply bear it as an external thing. He became it. So to look at him, is it? When I look at Jesus, I see myself. I look at Jesus, I see my guilt, my shame. He became it. And you at the self-same moment can see the same thing concerning yourself. He became it. Galatians 3 said he became a curse. He didn't merely take the curse as something external. He became it. Became the thing. The judge has become the judged. Did you get that? 
whenever you speak of the judge, God the judge, take a second look on the cross, the judge, by his own personal intention, agape in action, has become the judged. Everything that Goma was, he has become. So you go through those chapters in Hosea and you say, this is a disgusting... Well, hold it. Have you ever thought what crucifixion looked like? It was a moment for me. I went through Hosea line by line and I realized in those judgment... It's describing crucifixion. Yes, oh well. It, it, I'm, I'll just throw a few. Uh, it, it says she was stripped naked. Well, yeah. That was the first thing they did when they crucified. It says she is put to shame. Yes, that was the whole point of crucifixion, to shame their victims. It says abandoned and left. Yes. To lose everything, yes. The last sound Jesus heard was the sound of a dice upon a rock as they gambled for the clothes he wore. It even says there he hedged a belt with thorns. I wonder if that spoke of the crown of thorns. Everything he took to himself. So salvation is not something external to Jesus. Do, do you understand what I mean by that? It isn't that God did something and Jesus stands here and I did it for you. He became you and what happened inside of him is happening to you. It's not external, it's all there. And what does he do? Well, the the judgment, what happened at the cross, has come upon his physical body. That's why God had to become human in order to take our human position. But just a minute, I said it a moment ago, the mystery, when I speak to that human, God answers me. My sin is placed upon the man Christ Jesus. But the man is God. And what does God do with me when Jesus takes me to himself? God says, I forgive you. What happened to your sin? Does it just go? A sort of. You see, God's the only one who can forgive you because he's the one we sinned against. He's the one we told to get lost in the Garden of Eden. So the only one who can forgive me is God. And I have now been put into Jesus. He, he, he's there as me. And he joins with the Father and the Spirit and says, we got you. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he was talking about you when he said that.
He took our darkness. It says in John chapter 1, he took the darkness. And the darkness could not overcome him. So he took the worst we were. He took the bales and the demons. He took them all. But they couldn't overcome him. And so we died. And we died as no one had died since Eden. The mercy of God never fulfilled that. In the day you eat thereof, you should die. That never happened. Oh, we had physical death. But this death, that death is a return to the nothingness from whence you came. And this one chose to jump into that with you so that the last I see of Jesus entering into death is I see you I you in Christ entered into the abyss of death but he's God he's life and when life entered into death. That's what you have there. But it was real, by which I mean there's nothing left of that, you see. He had, it had to be so hideously real. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. That's why they were so amazed. It says Jesus, of his own volition, died. He gave up the ghost. And as he did so, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That is where I'm going. You're the only one that can bring me out. But in that darkness, Jesus could not see his father or feel his father. He experienced it as we do. But his life and life overcame the darkness and they echoed down as, as it says in Philippians those who are under the earth they've been waiting that's the Old Testament so all they could do is wait and as they wait now into the domain you could say the underworld if you want to Hades he comes and he announces Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And I am come to give you life. And when Jesus rose from the dead, you have a power greater than any power known on earth to reverse death and bring forth life. If you could think of it like this, he takes our guilt, our sin, everything that's crooked and wrong, all the lies that encompass us, the eros in which we would live. But 
he is like the morning sun. So in his humanity, he took our sin, which would be like a dense fog. And that dense fog in the early morning, where where does it go to by 11 o'clock? The fog meets the sun. And the sun dismisses the fog. Your sin and the worst you could ever do met with the sun of righteousness with healing in his rays. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And when he was declared by the Father, he is declared forgiven, for he had become as me. So I was forgiven and stand as he before the Father. He is face to face with the Father. I in him am face to face with the Father. I'm accepted. I'm home. I don't know if you can realize it it came to me again uh, and forgive me this is second time I'm using this but there's more to it this time it helped a lot of people last time we we just went to a wedding of Cheryl's um, granddaughter in Houston And, and I'm kind of feeling awkward I mean, just a little bit, because I don't know anybody, you know. I'm, I'm the new kid on the block. And I'm, I'm going to this wedding, and of course, Cheryl, as the maternal grandmother, is the center along. When we get there, I, I'm, I'm treated as a grandparent. And, and I, I, I mean, my first reaction was back up. I says, no, you know. But no, I had pictures taken along with the grandparents. You know where this is going, don't you? How come they're taking pictures of me at the grandchild's wedding when half the people there don't even know my name? And yet, I mean, and when we go to sit down, I'm at, at the head table with the parents. And, and again, I felt the same. You know, I mean, if I had just showed up at the gates and, and said, you know, I'd like to be considered a grandparent here, they probably would have called the police. You know, it's, no, see, you think, you've got to think this through. How come a total stranger to half the people is put as a grandparent, is placed at the head table? The only reason was that I was now covenantally in Cheryl and Cheryl in me, which immediately means I am treated as Cheryl and I have all the rights and authorities and welcome and assurance that she does. 
So it wasn't that I came to the door with a list of good things I'd done. It, you've, no, follow me, follow me. It, it isn't that I said, you know, I, I cry at the gate saying, please let me in, please let me have mercy upon me. No. I was there, totally accepted, honored, and given the glory that belonged to Cheryl. Does that kind of throw some light on this? That he bound himself to you so that he totally was shamed with your shame so that you were glorified with his glory. And when he came out of death, you came out with him. You were accepted. Accepted as new and as fresh in this world as Jesus was in the resurrection. Isaiah 61 had anticipated it. And it, it, it uses the word instead. It gives you a garland of joy instead of the morning. You know, give the garment of praise instead of heaviness. It's exchange. He became sin so that you might be the righteousness of God. That's the exchange. And that's In chapter 2, it speaks of the valley of Achor, which Achor means trouble. The valley of Achor, it's got its own story, but it was a valley of trouble. But once it was recognized as such, it became the door of hope. They went through that door, but it was a door of hope. And he uses that stand at the cross and it's nothing but trouble. But actually that trouble was the doorway to resurrection and to hope. Goma would come to the absolute rock bottom of herself and at that rock bottom Hosea joined her and said, okay, it might take time but you're going to know what agape is. You are going to experience agape. And then you'll be able to give agape. And so it was. And she became a new woman. Little Miss Agape. <laughs> well, there it is. Um, I trust that's at least unraveled some of the questions where we take our rest and that's what it is how can you add anything to that but when the disciples said to Jesus when he was about to enter this they said we want to come with you and he said where I go you cannot come solemn words where I go, you cannot come. He had to save us alone. Nobody could help him. 
And when he came out of the tomb, he picked us all up again. And he said, I ascend to my father and your father now. But he had to do it alone, which means I had nothing to do with it. I didn't even know what was going on. And that salvation, I, I simply trust him. And I can't lose this because it is not anchored to me. If your salvation is anchored to your decision, then we're back in the Old Testament where at the drop of a hat you're spiraling down back into the nothingness from whence you came. But you see, Jesus entered into that nothingness and made it his. So when he came out, he said, I have the keys of death and hell. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. So my salvation is not anchored to my decision. My salvation is not anchored to anything that is capable of corruption. It's anchored in Jesus. So I can never again go back into the death and the darkness. Because I'm in him who came out of it, having conquered it. And my salvation, my being, is as sure as Jesus. He is salvation. He didn't do it for us, so I've got to believe it to get it. He is it. And I'm included in him. My belief, the metanoia, the repentance that's attached to it, is simply, simply. <laughs> It is waking up to the reality. And that's why I said a few weeks ago, the sinner's prayer is really, wow. I wake up and I see what I've tried to say this morning. And all I can say is, wow. But that wow is faith and metanoia. I've seen it. And in, in seeing it, I believe it. Belief is not a mental struggle. Belief is I've seen it. And you can never reverse what you've seen. You can try, but you can never. You've seen it, you can never again say it isn't. I've seen it. And so, metanoia. open Radical opening of your eyes. And with that comes faith. I've seen it. But what have I seen? I haven't seen my decision, my faith. I've seen what he has done, and with it came the metanoia. So there it is. Father, we thank you. What else can we do? We run out of words. We thank you for salvation. Thank you that you, Lord Jesus, the grace of God, you have appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Thank you that you died and you rose, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Amen.